It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a great Monday morning show for you today, and we start today with the latest in the anti-old growth logging protests and the arrests going on. On Vancouver Island, two more people arrested yesterday with environmentalists trying to stop the old growth logging in the Ferry Creek area near Victoria. More than 170 people have been arrested so far. Now, breaking news on this story this morning. The three local First Nations in the region announced this morning they will ask the provincial government for a deferral of old growth logging in that disputed area. Now, that means the government could very likely approve that deferral, possibly pay compensation to the logging companies involved here. But the First Nations also making it clear that other forestry activity is continuing in the area. Does this end the dispute now? Will these blockades come down? Will the protesters now go home? Let's discuss now with my guests. We've assembled a great panel here for you, both sides of it. On the line, I got Charlie Forrester. Charlie is a third-generation truck logger on the island, 40 years in the business. He's a member of the BC Forestry Association. Very pleased to welcome him. Charlie, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, also on the line is Joshua Wright. Joshua is a 17-year-old climate activist and a filmmaker based out of Washington State. He's actually credited with with starting the protest movement here in this Ferry Creek uh, watershed. Joshua, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks to both of you guys. Joshua, let me go to you first with this breaking news with these First Nations here now saying they're looking for a deferral of this old-growth logging in the area. Is, is that it? Do you guys declare victory and go home now? Is it all over? I wish we could, but uh, it looks like it's a small victory. It looks like we uh, they might actually be deferring road building into the Ferry Creek watershed, but unfortunately... Uh, this plan allows for uh, massive old growth logging to continue in areas like the KQs and the Upper Wabren and Edinburgh Mountains. So I wish it was that clear cut and that simple. But right now we're wait- still waiting to see maps. And unfortunately, this seems like one step in the right direction, but it's not- definitely not as far as we need to go. So, so you're saying there's still old growth logging set to go ahead there, despite this announcement this morning? Absolutely. Like our, our blockades uh, have, are not interfering with second growth logging. We have no interest in interfering with, interfering with second growth logging. Um, but yes, this plan does allow for continued old growth logging in many areas. And, uh, you know, the uh, old growth strategic review is very clear and it, in saying that we need to um, defer logging in all at-risk old growth, not just a few areas. So we're hoping to see that happen uh, in the coming weeks. But this, this definitely does mean that we are going to still be out there and we're going to uh, remain on the front lines until all of that uh, about three point or one point three million hectares identified by the Sierra Club is deferred, rather than just a few thousand hectares here and there. Okay, Charlie Forrester, you you heard there from Joshua, the protesters not going home. Your thoughts? Well, I just want to say one thing right off the bat here: that how dare you interfere with what goes on in our country? You're from a foreign country. You have no business interfering with anything that goes on in our country. You have no business interfering with what happens within a sovereign native nation and what they decide or don't decide to do on their lands. You need to get lost, go home, and stay out of our business. This is Canada. 
We are more than capable of looking after ourselves and taking care of our BC forestry industry is well run, well managed, is the best in the world, and it is professionally done by professional foresters within the government and within the industry. And you need to get lost, and so do all of your environmental oh. terrorist friends, okay? Uh, Joshua, what do you say to that? Uh, can I ask for a civil discussion here? You know, the people yeah. out on the front lines, those are all British Columbians, and they've been out there for months, and they are not environmental terrorists. They are normal British Columbians. They're the 92% of British Columbians who want to see a shift to a sustainable second-growth industry and just want to preserve the last few percent of old growth. You know, it's not a radical position. There are, you know, there are, there are, a, lot of, there are a lot of things you can do to transition to a sustainable second-growth industry that does not eliminate jobs. It's actually good for, you know, good for communities, good for everyone. And the majority of British Columbians want that, and those are the people that are out in the front lines. And, you know, can we have a civil discussion rather than, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, yelling at each other. Okay, well, Charlie, let me let me go back to you. And I, you know, I, I think you got, you got your your shot in there about about Joshua being from Washington State there. But what do you think about what can you say to people who care about the about these issue and saying that these ancient trees should be preserved? What what do you say to them? Um, well, of course, I mean, loggers aren't interested in, in knocking down every last bit of uh, old-growth forest out there. That's not the intention. Old-growth logging is part of forestry in B.C., and you can't have second growth unless you log old-growth. Um, and this business of uh, the environmentalists uh, discuss, uh, saying that they're not anti-logging, well, I have to disagree with that, because if you're anti-old-growth logging, you're anti-logging, uh, period. There is no in-between, because old-growth logging is a, a part of uh, forestry within B.C. So, I mean, as uh, loggers, we're not going to cut down every last tree. And I just want to say that Ferry Creek is not... Uh, going to be logged it'll never be logged it's uh, 74 percent of it is protected the remaining 26 percent is unaccessible but the only way to access that would be to come in through with helicopters and heli log and it's just not feasible to do that and what they are saying is, is going to be logged is outside of the ferry creek watershed there's no logging to be done inside the ferry creek watershed so this is just more misinformation and lies and hysteria that is being spread by the environment well is that what, what do you say to that joshua so with the new deferral, we're hopeful that there won't be any old growth logging in Ferry Creek, at the, you know, now that there's been a deferral and now that the government's acting to protect it. But like there were very clear plans to log within the watershed, not all of it, but some of it. And right now, you know, uh, it, we're not anti-logging. We really aren't. We want, I mean, we want a sustainable second growth forest sector. But right now we're down to 35,000 hectares of the biggest old, of the biggest old growth trees left in the province. And only about 6% of that is protected. And most of that will be cut in the next few years. Uh, to, you know, in total, there's about 400,000 hectares of, you know, big tree old growth. And that's what we were asking for, you know, to be protected. Because we've already logged well over 90% of our best old growth. You know, it's actually close to 97% of our old growth that we've cut of the best, biggest trees. And Charlie. what we're saying is we want the last 3% to be preserved. And, you know, arguing for the continued logging of this last 35,000 hectares of the biggest, best old growth is akin to logging uh, the last redwoods. You know, there are about 50,000 hectares of redwoods left, and there's about 35,000 hectares of these trees in B.C. left that are as big, as old, and as valuable as redwoods. Charlie, what so, do you yeah, say to that? It's not black and white, and we can shift to the same Hey, hey Josh, you want to give it a break? It's my turn to speak there. Um, go, go ahead, Charlie. Call, yeah, I'm going to call bullshit on that. Apologies for the language here, but this, I'm a truck logger, and uh, this is how I talk. No uh, disrespect to anybody. Um, you know, only 0.03% of BC's working forest is harvested annual, equal to the rate of trees' growth, meaning harvest is 100% renewable and sustainable. BC government figures show 55% of the province is 3.2 million hectares of old-growth forest, 1.1 million, 
hectares are protected in parks and wilderness areas. So I'm, I'm disagreeing 100% with he's saying. Uh, like normal, uh, facts are wrong. And I want to bring something else here, uh, Mike, uh, that never gets talked about. And, uh, you know, he says they're a nonviolent uh, group. I have to disagree with that. Uh, Josh, you actively uh, promote and condone violence uh, out in the forest. And uh, at this moment, there's been all kinds of violence. How does he, how does he, do, how does he do that? Uh, through his media connections. He's in charge of everything, isn't he? I mean, that's what he says. Uh, he has specifically said himself. Josh, Joshua, what do you say to that? Uh, I think it's, um, a, I think it's an insult to say that I'm in charge of anything. I'm not in charge of anything. This is a movement of British Columbians. I helped start it, but I'm not. You know, I'm not someone who is controlling things. And there has been no violence on the front lines. There has been no violence on the front lines except for the violence that loggers and RCMP have inflicted against us. You know, we're peaceful protesters. That's wrong. And to say otherwise is, you know, making shit up. <laughs> hey, hey, Joshua, let, let, me, let me ask you this. I'm taking a look at the, the statement from the three First Nations involved here this morning that put out this statement about old growth logging, and they make it clear that there's, uh, there's other logging that is, they want to go ahead, and they're asking people to allow, allow the work to continue. So they put out a statement here today saying that the, the nation's are asking uh, asking everyone to allow forestry operations approved by the nations in the province to continue without disruption. They say people are allowed to come in and protest, but they write the lawful protest should not interfere with legally authorized forestry operations. Joshua, what do you say to the the First Nations here involved on that? Will you respect their wishes? Well, I think that the you know. I have no business as a settler speaking for First Nations, um, but what I will say is that there is the issue is not that black and white, and there are a lot of First Nations peoples involved in our movement who don't think that a band council has the ultimate authority to say, you know, we're going to clear cut this forest or that forest. And you know, I'll, I'll just um, you know go to uh, the the uh, Grand Chief of the UBIC who said basically that you know First Nations need to uh, respect their own. Um, land base. And that's one of the issues of settler colonialism is, is it puts First Nations in a position where um, they are they have no other option except to log old growth forests. So in that context, you know, the BC government needs to come up with conservation financing and economic okay. alternatives for these communities rather than oh. saying you can log or you or we'll, we'll log and, and you won't get any of the benefits. Okay, th- uh, Charlie, we got 20 seconds here. What, what do you say to the protesters here? I think they need to leave. Uh, they need to get lost. They need to go home. Um, as loggers, we are fully in support of the uh, local First Nations uh, bands uh, uh, and nations that are down there uh, with what they want to do to further logging and logging their own old-growth forests. Uh, that's a great idea, I think. Uh, come up with a comprehensive plan on how you want to do it and, and go to work. Um, we support okay. you 100%. It's your property. Um, you can do with it as you please, or what you don't want to do with it you, with, uh, as you please. So we okay. support them 100%. Okay, I will have to leave it there, guys. Thank you both for coming on. It was got a little heated there, I thought, but I do appreciate both of you coming on. Joshua Wright is a climate activist and filmmaker based out of Washington State. He is credited with actually starting the protest movement here in that Ferry Creek disputed area. Charlie Forrester is third-generation truck logger, member of the BC Forestry Association. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with the bailout and the bonuses at Air Canada. Taxpayers across the country outraged last week to learn Air Canada 
paid out $10 million in lavish bonuses to their executives. At the same time, the company was negotiating a near $6 billion taxpayer finance bailout. Now the breaking news on this one. In a statement yesterday, Air Canada confirmed that its executive vice presidents, the president and CEO, have all returned the bonuses. They have all voluntarily given the bonuses back. Now, interestingly here, the statement does not mention whether middle managers at Air Canada would return their bonuses. Some of these middle managers got loot too. Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland last night issued a statement commending Air Canada executives for returning these bonuses, saying this was a, state, a step in the right direction. Let's discuss now what a great guest I've got for you, Mark Hancock. Mark is the national president of CUPE, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Mark, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on, brother. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Uh, Mark, what CUPE represents, I believe you guys represent the flight attendants at Air Canada. Is that correct? That's right. There's uh, over 11,000 flight attendants uh, at Air Canada, and uh, so we represent those folks, as well as the other airlines, uh, WestJet, Transat, uh, uh, all of those flight attendants uh, are members of QP. What did you think when you first heard about these bonuses at Air Canada? Well, it's a, it's a real slap in the face to, uh, to my members and to Canadians generally. Um, you know, we have, as of now, we still have about 8,200 uh, members at Air Canada that aren't working because, you know, planes aren't flying like they used to. Uh, but those folks have had to, uh, you know, go on government programs, uh, find additional jobs, uh, you know, really have suffered, like a lot of Canadians have during the last year and a bit. And it's a real slap in the face to them, and it's, but it's a slap in the face to Canadians. I mean, like you said, $6 billion of our of our federal tax dollars uh, going to Air Canada. And let me be clear, like, I, I think that the, the initiative, the idea behind supporting an airline is, is, is really important. Uh, you know, we need to have a strong airline uh, sector coming out of COVID to you know, to get back to some normalcy. But for $10 million of that to go to bonuses to, to vice presidents is absolutely absurd. Yeah. yeah. Now, what do you think about this announcement now that some of these top executives will give the voluntarily give the bonuses back? Well, I was just listening to your intro there, and my understanding is about uh, that's about 20% of the $10 million, that there's still $8 million that is still uh, gone out in bonuses to, to middle managers. To I'm not too sure who, who exactly... Uh, but I mean, you know, let's, uh, you know, Minister Freeland commending them, uh, you know, okay, great. But really, they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar and, and they're trying to make amends because they're getting hit really hard uh, across the country on this. That's really what this is about. Yeah, yeah. I, and I just wonder if uh, they would be paying this money back if they hadn't got caught. Of course they wouldn't be. <laughs> Come on. You know? Exactly. Like, no, uh, you know, it's, uh, and, and I get it's been hard. It's been hard for everybody. Uh, you know, during the early days of this pandemic, uh, a lot of our members were still working as flight attendants when when uh, Air Canada and other airlines were, were repatriating Canadians, bringing them home from abroad. And there was no yeah. bonuses for that. Those those folks were concerned about their health. They were concerned about, you know, taking uh, corona, coronavirus home to their family and friends. I mean, there was, I, I, it wasn't that long ago. We all remember what it was like. So it was so difficult for all these folks. And, and it's not just folks in that uh, industry, of course. It was, you know, grocery clerks and, and, and so many others. But for, for these bonuses to be paid out is, is absurd. 
Yeah, what do you think about the explanation or the rationale from Air Canada that these bonuses were effectively performance bonuses that were given out to these executives for steering the company through the COVID pandemic, which to me, it's, it, it almost seems like they were given bonuses because they laid a bunch of people off. You know? that, that, yeah, that's pretty much the way I see it. And like I said, yeah. you know, like uh, if bonuses should have gone anywhere, it should have gone to the frontline folks. It should have gone to those flight attendants that were, were scared and bringing Canadians home from abroad. That's, if there was any bonuses going out, I think Canadians would have a better, uh, you know, better feeling about that rather than executives. Okay, speaking speaking to Mark Hancock, the national president of the QP Union, they represent flight attendants at Air Canada. You mentioned that this statement from Air Canada, we don't have the full story here on these bonuses. There were $10 million in bonuses that went out. $2 million went to those top executives, and we're now told those senior, those most senior tippy-top executives, they'll give the money back, but that still leaves $8 million we don't have an explanation for that went apparently went to middle managers. Would you call on those middle managers to refund the bonuses too? Well, I call on Air Canada to deal with the situation. And, and you know, the federal government got taken for a bit of a ride here, right? Like, and again, I, I said, I, I agree with, with uh, making sure that uh, the company continues to operate. And then I get that, you know, there's been some real challenges for that company, uh, just like any other comp- a lot of other com- companies across uh, Canada and across the world. But I think, I think what really bites at me and probably a lot of folks is that, you know, here we go again, uh, you know, senior executives uh, maintaining their jobs, maintaining their salaries. So there was some uh, there was some give backs, I understand, or that's what the company has said. But like, you know, U.S. billionaires made an additional nine hundred and thirty one billion dollars under during COVID. And Canadians have really struggled. You know, many too many Canadians have have lost, lost their jobs uh, Too many. Uh, you know, we've seen you know, so much sadness and tragedy throughout this whole thing. And we here we have some some airlines, vice presidents and executives uh, making uh, money off of the taxpayers' money, so it's it's my members, yeah. it's it's workers across this country paying their hard-earned taxes, and most people don't mind paying their fair share of taxes, but when they see it going to executives from a company like Air Canada, that's a real problem. How many people ha- were laid off at Air Canada, and how many are still out of off the job right now? Well, we still, like I said, we still have about eighty-two hundred. So that's that's flight attendants. Wow. So on top of that, you have pilots. On top of that, you have uh, ground, uh, you know, ground personnel, uh, people working in the airports. Uh, they're represented by other unions, so I'm not sure what that number is, but uh, it's probably, I, I, you know, I would venture a guess it's probably 15,000, but I, I really, that's a guess. Right, and we also have heard a lot of stories that Air Canada, in some cases, were refusing to give people refunds for tickets that got canceled because of the travel restrictions. I mean, this is another one where it just really rubbed people the wrong way. They've been fighting with Air Canada for a refund, and then they find yeah. out that their executives got bonuses here effectively for laying people off to get the company through through the pandemic. What do you say about that, like the, the people who are looking for a refund from Air Canada? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, I understand it completely. The, you know, folks have uh, booked their flights, whether it was a holiday or, a, you know, some type of trip to see family, reunions, whatever the case may be, and, you know, uh, flight tickets aren't cheap, and uh, I, I get where the company may be coming from around cash flow. There may be some real challenges there, but uh, Air Canada didn't handle that very well either. And, uh, you yeah. know, I think Canadians are pretty forgiving uh, and understanding people generally. But, uh, again, you're piling this on top of that, and uh, right. just it doesn't look good for Air Canada, which is too bad because, you know, I fly well before COVID. I, I flew quite a bit. Uh, it's a big country. We have members across it, and, and I have to tell you, the – the staff, uh, you know, the, the flight attendants, the, you know, the ground staff, they're all just amazing people. Sure, we all have bad days, but uh, 
uh, unfortunately, they're all wearing this, and that's a real you know that's a real problem from my perspective. Okay, last question for you. So you want you want more clarity on this from Air Canada about where all this money went, correct? Well, I want yeah, I want, I want uh, clarity, but I, I want uh, I want Air Canada to uh, you know to step up and to 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 be a, a good corporate citizen in, in Canada and, and not to do stupid things like this. Uh, to take uh, tax dollars, to take you know my members' money, uh, Canadians' money, and, and hand it out to executives. That's that's definitely what I, I don't want. Okay, thanks for coming on today to talk about it. I appreciate it a lot. Absolutely, no problem. Thanks. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. So, so much, Michael. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the calls now to rename a 17-block-long street in Kitsilano, Trutch Street, is named after Joseph Trutch, the first lieutenant governor of British Columbia. He was lieutenant governor from 1871 to 1876. He held notoriously racist views about indigenous people. His legacy on indigenous issues also been just roundly eviscerated, especially his decision to reduce the size of previously agreed indigenous land reserves in the province. Should the name of Trutch Street now be dropped, rename the street Truth Street? It's an issue that's been talked about for a long time. Of course, it got new urgency in the aftermath of the discovery of the buried bodies of children at the former Indigenous Residential School in Kamloops. Let's discuss now with my guest, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mayor Stewart, thank you for coming on. Yeah, hey, Mike, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. What are your thoughts on this issue? Well, I'm the one who's bringing forward the motion to council on uh, <clears throat> to uh, rename Trutch Street, and uh, this kind of came to me after discussing it with the uh, Musqueam leadership. Uh, they've they've been trying to do this for for a decade, and uh, it seemed that the time was was right to uh, uh, to accommodate that request. So it is community driven, and it is specifically related to the reduction in in reserve size and just uh, you know the kind of right. deep pain that's left uh, for Musqueam and other other nations. Right. Well, so who is this guy? Like, what primarily is it that he did or said that I, I think would, would result in this action? I think if you ask most people to name, if you gave told most people this name, they wouldn't even know who this person was. That's right. And I, I think it's uh, just a, a legacy of how we've named streets, uh, you know, that, that have been in the city for, for a long time. And I think it, a lot of those are being reevaluated. But this one... Uh, again, was a uh, you know request from uh, Musqueam leadership that uh, again we we are a city of reconciliation and we're trying to do things we can and I and I think uh, boy if we can't re- rename streets uh, to to have them be more reflective of, of the modern community then you know that's that's the least we can do so so that's uh, that'll be coming forward to council for discussion and right. you did mention in the beginning uh, you know that it was to re- rename it to truth street that's actually not the case in my okay. motion uh, okay. mine is to uh, and i've talked with musqueam about this already is that they they would choose the name okay and uh and then council you know we just totally uh, uh relinquish our 
our ability to do that to Musqueam Council, and then they would send us back the name, and then we'd go through the uh, the effort that uh, we need to change it. But we're just working through that now, and uh, the the, uh, the text of the motion will come uh, not tomorrow's council meeting, but uh, two weeks from tomorrow. Yeah, this guy's views in history are not in dispute. It's it's all been documented and as part of his record, including some handwritten letters that are preserved in which I was just looking at reading about a letter that he wrote to his, his mother, for example, that's still on file, in which he referred to Indigenous people as the ugliest and laziest creatures I ever yeah. saw. And all, all, kinds of other, all kinds of other terrible things, like calling, calling Indigenous people uncivilized savages and bestial. I mean, it's just terrible, terrible. N- and then the legislative stuff. work, right, to actually reduce living space, and and you know yeah. it is it is all part of a, a genocidal effort on on many uh, past leaders of our country that we're all having to take not only to digest and internalize, but also to take action to uh, to uh, to remedy. Yeah, of course. Now, there's always an argument that if you erase your history you're doomed to repeat it and maybe these names should be retained so people can remember let me play this here for you mayor stewart this is michael kluckner who is a local uh, historian and author talking here about the name change he has an interesting perspective on it let's have a listen people learn a little bit and they learn what a difficult well i mean odious character uh trutch was and the effect that he had on uh, indigenous people particularly in the province um you know, it's something that I think should, we should keep remembering. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you take Trutch off and you name it Flower Street, or you know, you can imagine mm-hmm. um, some kind of name that would come up on that, then the memory of Trutch disappears, and people don't remember the history, and so they just have this vague sense of injustice going on without really understanding how these things came about. Okay, what do you think of that argument that maybe when you drop these names, there's similar arguments around taking down statues of Sir John A. Macdonald, for example, that when you do that, you actually lose an opportunity to for people to remember and understand our history. But your thoughts? Uh, kind of silly, really. I mean, it's not erasing what Trutch's various legacies are. It's just street names are made to honor uh, people, really. I mean, we've we've uh, you know that's something that. Uh, that I think they're, they're, we name streets after people or places because we want to recognize that. And I, I don't think anybody would argue we should honor Trutch, but that's not, that's not this cancel culture idea or anything. This, you know, you're able to look up who he is on the Internet. Uh, just that when Muskim folks uh, travel to their reserve, they don't have to uh, drive down the street that honors somebody that reduced it. <laughs> By a, but a huge amount, and yeah. you know, actively work to eradicate them. So I, I think that uh, you know we got to get beyond uh, those comments. Okay, you know, another argument that comes up is where does it end? Okay, if we rename this street, there are lots of other odious names from history that possibly have streets named after them in the city of Vancouver. I mean, do you start changing other street names too? Where where does it stop? Sure. I mean, you know, cities are are. Uh, they're always kind of they're almost living breathing things right they're always evolving they're always changing and streets are always going to get renamed <laughs> you know so I, I mean i i think it's it should re- re- better reflect the values of the community we are now and uh you know that's that's just kind of how it goes and again this is a really small part of reconciliation and i i, yeah. I think the debate whether 
whether or not we should rename streets is probably long past, and, and I think it would pass the nod test of most people that we shouldn't celebrate somebody who, who uh, you know, pushed for genocide of, of folks we're trying to reconcile with. So, um, you know, I, uh, you know, people are welcome to come out to council to state their views, and we have the debate, and and then uh, you know, make a decision on it. But, uh, but the name suggestion, I feel, should rest with Musqueam, um, and right. that's uh, what the motion will say. Okay, what is the process here now? When does this go before council? Yeah, so um, tomorrow I uh, just, uh, you know, hold the space on the agenda, and then I'll be working with Musqueam over the next couple of weeks to get the text of the motion. It, it won't be very long, and then it will come to council in, uh, in uh, two weeks from Tuesday. Okay, we continue to follow that one very closely. I'm speaking yeah. to Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Mayor Stewart, while I've got you here, let me ask you about the situation with uh, the PNE seeking yep. funding and help here. Of course, owned and operated by the city of Vancouver. So let me play a clip here for you from Shelley Frost, uh, the president of the PNE. Now, the provincial government uh, recently announced a grant program for major tourist attractions suffering the downturn during the pandemic. Uh, the PNE eligible for $1 million under that program. They had been seeking a lot more than that, up to $8 million in assistance. Here's Shelley Frost, the PNE president. At some point, the debt becomes insurmountable and that the organization, what we can do and how we can do it, is going to be forever changed. One million dollars, although we are incredibly thankful for that concrete step forward, is not going to be enough. Okay, Shelley Frost there, the PNE president, saying a million dollars from the province is not going to cut it. I had Premier John Horgan on the show here last week, and we talked about uh, the shortfall in funding for the PNE. And interesting, he sort of turns it back on the city of Vancouver here. Here's the premier on last week's show. The city of Vancouver is responsible for the PNE, and uh, I, I would like to see what the plan is in Vancouver, uh, rather than just turning to Victoria and saying, how do we solve these problems? Okay, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, there's the Premier dumping this one back in your lap. What do you say? Sure, well, it's uh, something I'm used to at this point uh, through COVID, but, uh, you know, I, I work very closely with, with Shelley Frost, and, and uh, we, um, we had, you know, worked together on a plan. The city has backstopped the PNE uh, with a line of credit, uh, which has kept them afloat to date, and uh, I think th- Right now, it's about $15 million, or that's uh, what we're prepared to, to back. So we are hoping that the province would, would help here uh, because it's, although it, the, the P&E is in the city of Vancouver and it's on land that we operate, it is a pro- provincial-wide, I think, uh, huge celebration of our, our BC culture and, and trades and, you know, just a great place for people to gather. Uh, the million dollars was disappointing because the program wasn't based on a, on a needs basis, it was just an arbitrary number that they chose. You know, big events get a million, small events get 500,000, but the P&E is one of the biggest. And again, it uh, it should be, you know, we're, we're in talks with the province to see if they can help out here. But, uh, and we are also hopeful that the P&E can operate uh, some type of uh, events this year to generate some revenue. But, uh, you know, really hope it isn't fatal for for the fair because it is something that's celebrated right across. It's not, of course, it's not just people from Vancouver that go to the PNE. It's people right across the province. Okay, but the PNE is owned by the city, though, right? Sure. Okay, it so is. doesn't that? So why is it the province's responsibility then? Well, why is anything the province's responsibility? I mean, it's the Pacific National Exhibition, right? It's 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 something that's run province wide, and I think that the city could use that land for all kinds of stuff and we use it to host a, a province-wide fair that used to be of course uh, much more supported by the province so 
you know, I think it's uh, priorities of the uh, of the province here. They they they've invested in other uh, attractions and events that are also hosted by municipalities. So um, I don't really buy the the premier's okay. logic on this one. Uh, okay, so the P and E should not expect any more financial assistance from the city. Is that fair to well, say? Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all the capital investments are from the city. I mean, everything, all the structures and everything are, are both owned, and any upgrades, um, you know, which we're taking a close look at about how to make that site better, is absolutely uh, from the city. So, you know, this is a. Uh, but I'm talking about the assistance that they're asking for. I mean, they were yeah. looking for eight million bucks. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there was a lot of federal money that was transferred to go directly to municipalities. Uh, Vancouver was supposed to get about $60 million. Uh, instead, the province chose to give us $16 million, and they sent $40 million elsewhere. That was not what the provincial pro- uh, the federal program was structured to do, and if they just uh, stuck by a per capita um, uh, disbursement of the federal dollars like it was intended and like it was done in every other province, we wouldn't be having these discussions. We could have used some mm-hmm. of that money for the PNE too. But the provinces decided to, to use that money elsewhere, and I think they should put some of it into the P&E. Um, and, you know, it'll be an ongoing discussion, but uh, it's, a, it's a tough one. You know, we, uh, we, we found out today that uh, we've lost $170 million, uh, you know, over the, over the next two years, last year and this year, uh, due to COVID. And, you know, we've only got property taxes. <laughs> really, that's our only base so we don't we don't have any other other than some service fees and parking and stuff uh we can't absorb the kind of hits that that the pandemic uh, brought on and it's going to show in service delivery for sure mayor kennedy stewart thanks for your time today i appreciate you coming on thank you all right welcome back to the show by the time the third round of the stanley cup playoffs begin we will know which canadian team will be the first to travel to the United States this year. A travel exemption has now been approved by the Canadian government because of a national interest. Our show contributor, John Jang, has the latest. John. Good morning, Mike. For the first time in over a year, a Canadian NHL team will be traveling to the United States. This after Immigration Minister Marco Mendicino issued a statement on Twitter on Sunday morning, and I quote, Following a careful review by public health officials at all levels of government, a national interest exemption has been approved to allow the next round of the Stanley Cup playoffs to be played in Canada and the United States. This decision was made in conjunction with Health Canada, with the approval of provincial and municipal public health officials, including Ontario, Quebec, Manitoba, and Alberta. The NHL's COVID playoff protocol will permit cross-border travel that is safeguarded by strict quarantining, a bubble, daily testing, and a comprehensive protocol that will apply to all traveling NHL players and personnel. Incoming players and club personnel from the United States to Canada will be subject to pre- and post-arrival daily testing. Furthermore, they will be required to quarantine at pre-approved hotels and arenas. In addition to NHL's COVID protocol, NHL players and personnel will have to abide by all local public health rules, and we continue to monitor this COVID-19 situation on both sides of the border. We will not hesitate to take further public health measures where necessary. Quite simply put, Mike, one of the Montreal Canadiens or the Winnipeg Jets will be playing against either the Vegas Golden Knights or the Colorado Avalanche in the third round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Montreal Canadiens currently hold a 3-0 series lead over the Jets, while the Golden Knights and Avalanche are tied to a piece. 
NHL players and staff will travel to and from the United States using private planes. All players and staff will be subject to pre- and post-arrival testing in addition to daily COVID-19 testing. And it should be noted that this is the first time the Canadian government has offered any kind of outright travel exemption for pro sports. The Toronto Blue Jays started their season in Dunedin, Florida before recently moving to Buffalo, New York. The Toronto FC, the Montreal Impact, and the Vancouver Whitecaps of the MLS have all relocated to different U.S. cities for their season. And of course, the Toronto Raptors recently completed their season in Tampa, Florida. But it's worth noting that not every professional athlete will have been inoculated with a COVID-19 vaccine. This past Saturday, John Rahm, who was leading the Memorial Tournament by six, was told on live television that he had in fact been tested positive for COVID-19 and was forced to withdraw. Here is that moment from Saturday. All right. Uh, Dottie, is there any other information out now? Uh, there is, and I've confirmed it through the PGA Tour that John Rahm has tested positive for COVID-19. Oh. Obviously, for privacy concerns, uh, we won't know which NHL players have received the vaccine or how many players have actually been inoculated, which makes this announcement and the need for daily testing so important. But how will this announcement impact sports at lower levels, things like amateur or rec sports leagues? Charlene Krepikavich, the CEO of Via Sport, was on Mornings with Simi earlier today and was asked about that trickle-down effect. Do you view this as a positive for amateur sport as well? Well, you know, I, I think this is just a step, um, again, another step to indicate that slowly over time we're seeing sport return to, to new normal. Uh, so, yes, while this is, um, you know, a federal decision impacting professional sports, I can say that this is a good indicator for, for British Columbia. And certainly in uh, here in B.C., we are uh, seeing some progress with the return to sport in our communities. Um, you know, last, uh, well, a, couple, a week or so ago on May 25th, uh, the provincial government, uh, you know, announced the restart plan. And in that restart plan, um, in step one, we, we are seeing um, amateur sport return to our communities, particularly in outdoor sport. So since that time, um, outdoor sports can return um, with, with a few restrictions. So, uh, I'm sure that, Simi, you've seen it in your community, I've seen it mm-hmm. in mine, and I anticipate in your listeners as well, as starting to see more sport activities out on the field of play and in, in communities across the province. Do you get the sense that this, like having this team get the exemption to go down to the States to continue the playoffs, just it's another feeling of life perhaps returning to that normal that we miss? Oh, absolutely. It's 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 optimism, right? It, we're starting to see things kind of return to way they, the way they were. And of course, you know, sport is very much part of the Canadian fabric. Our, our, our communities gather around sport. They celebrate sport. They're inspired by sport. So this is, um, this is a really great news to see um, this uh, permission being granted. And, you know, certainly in BC um, with the restart plan, we are seeing really good, Steps that will allow more and more competition, more travel over time, depending on uh, vaccinations, hospitalizations, and case counts, etc. But um, for now, you know, our, our outdoor sports are well underway. And then by June 15th, which is step two, uh, we anticipate that there will be some further easing of restrictions um, coming out, um, you know, pending all of these uh, case counts, etc. But 
there's a real path forward now, and uh, people are excited. There's optimism. Clubs are ramping up. Uh, players are getting out on the field, and it's all good news. Mike, I also did reach out to the MLS front office asking if it had made any progress between uh, the league and the Canadian government that would allow the three Canadian clubs, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, to receive a similar exemption and possibly bring those teams home. I have yet to receive a response, but the regular season for the MLS started on April 16th and the playoffs will begin on November 19th. That means by the fall, with stronger vaccination numbers in both Canada and the United States, it's entirely possible that the MLS playoffs will feature Canadian clubs once again playing on home turf. All right, John, Jang, thank you very much for that report there on the travel exemption for the whichever Canadian team advances in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And John joins me now. Hey, John, does this announcement surprise you at all in any way? No, not really. I mean, when the regular season for the NHL began, we knew about this temporary All-Canadian North Division. It was a way for the NHL and both governments on each side of the border to basically kick this can down up until this point, where now only two Canadian teams are left, and by the end of the week, one of them will eventually have to go and play an American team. I know that the NHL, Mike, had been thinking about a similar bubble situation like they had last year with uh, Toronto at Edmonton, but ultimately they decided, well, if there's only going to be one Canadian team, it probably makes more sense to just allow that team to travel to and from the border and vice versa the Canadian government also I guess agreeing and making that announcement over the weekend. Okay it's an interesting announcement and I wonder what most Canadians feel about it here because I've seen some pushback on it on on both sides like some people saying well yeah this is a good thing let's get back to some normalcy here on the other hand you know the border is still closed to to Canadians for non-essential travel Except you get these millionaire hockey players get a, a special exemption. So, I mean, what kind of what kind of public reaction are you hearing on this? Yeah, when the immigration minister uh, Marco Mendicino released those tweets over the weekend on on. Sorry, on Sunday, uh, I looked through the responses themselves, Mike, and a lot of Canadians, uh, they were split, like you're saying. Some yeah. saying, okay, I'm happy with the idea of playoffs continuing. Uh, let's go have, like, it was mostly Habs fans, I'm not going to lie to you, that were really excited just, just to see that, okay, the Canadians have a chance to win here, et cetera, et cetera. But then most Canadians also saying, well, look, I don't have a stake in the game, but what I do know is that I haven't seen my parents or my grandparents in over a year. And I, uh, I don't understand why millionaire professional athletes get this sort of extra special treatment whereas everyday canadians are continuing to struggle and doing our part to bend these curves so it really does seem like on paper that the rich and the elite get a little bit of that extra treatment whereas most canadians are just waiting asking the question well when's it our turn okay and have you found that nhl teams have largely followed the covid protocols like have we had a lot of outbreaks in hockey uh, it's a bit of a, again, split decision here because some NHL teams have been a lot more lax with the COVID-19 protocols. In fact, according to some reports, Mike, one of the worst clubs in the NHL to uh, break COVID-19 protocols were, in fact, the Vancouver Canucks. So it's clear that even Canadian teams that have had to deal with an all-North Canadian division have had some trouble adhering to all the protocols all the time. So it's going to be very important that all players mandate with the uh, uh, daily testing, uh, the pre- and post-flight testing. But this decision is going to be looked at by not just the NHL, but all pro sports, just to see how it's uh, going to be working out. Okay, great stuff, John. Thank you for that. You got it. Thanks, Mike.